electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead. You've heard by now about the Dow shakeup, but you may not know about the ETF shakeout. A record number are closing and launches are at a seven-year low. Why? And what does it mean for investors? That's ahead. And the latest jaw-dropping data on the housing market. New home sales surging. The average selling price of a new home in this country is quickly approaching $400,000. Can this last? And what happens to buyers getting priced out? Plus, the IPO surge continues. Chipotle's big upside. And is Elon overhyping battery tech? That's all ahead in rapid fire. But we begin with today's markets. And Bob Bassani is here for those numbers. Bob? Hello, Kelly. Uh, We were positive at the open, but then we got the consumer confidence number around 10 p.m. Eastern time. It was below expectations, kind of a disappointment. Took the sale of the wind out of our sails a little bit here, and we've been floundering around either side of positive or negative uh, ever since that started here. We did a great uh, new home sales numbers, though. Here you see something, uh, we typical pattern here. Semiconductors outperforming a little bit. Uh, Commercial communication services doing well. Industrials, banks, and energy stocks all to the downside. And once again, we're seeing a little bit of interest. There you, there you see the semiconductors, industrials, banks, and uh, energy to the downside. Uh, once again, we're seeing interest in these thematic ETFs in the technology space. So, for example, solar stocks uh, doing well, uh, cloud computing stocks, internet stocks doing well, cybersecurity stocks. These are thematic ideas, and particularly in technology, they've been hot recently. Thematic, a big winner this year. All of those are trading to the upside. We talked about that Dow shakeup here uh, in Salesforce in the Dow, and Gen in the Dow, Honeywell's in the Dow, all of them trading a little bit to the upside. On the outs, Exxon, Pfizer, and Raytheon, and interestingly, all three of them are trading slightly to the downside. I wouldn't put too much into this, guys. There's very, very little money that is indexed to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Over 11 trillion is indexed to the S&P 500, and that's the one that really matters. Guys, back to you. That's true. Bob, thank you. We'll have more on that in a little bit. Meantime, we have seen a lot of surprisingly strong data on the economy lately, from blowout home sales to weekly retail sales figures, which just turned positive year on year. But this morning, a setback to that positive story. Consumer confidence came in much lower than expected. How much of a setback is it, and what does it mean for the market? Let's bring in Wasif Latif. He's head of investments at Victory Capital Solutions, and Barry James is president and portfolio manager at James Investment Research. Barry, I'll start with you. Is the drop in consumer confidence a warning sign uh, as far as you're concerned about what lies ahead for the stock market? It is a concern. Um, Obviously, uh, the consumer is the largest part of our economy. If they aren't you know, confident in, in the future, then uh, it will mean they pull back in spending and that will have a, a ripple effect. So we're watching that very carefully. There's a lot of things going on in people's minds right now. One of the good things for consumers, though, is the, their, um, their finances are okay. Their bankruptcy rates are, are heading down. So uh, there is some positive news for those folks, but it's not all positive. As we've talked to you over the last couple of weeks, Barry, you've been more cautious on the market as it's continued to run up to new highs. Does that make you more cautious? Uh, At some point, do you say, you know what, forget it. This thing really has some legs to it. I'm just curious how your thinking is evolving. 
Yeah, um, I have a dog that steps on my feet all the time, and I explain the second law of physics to him, and that is that two objects can't occupy the same space at the same time. <laughs> now, investors have a space up here, and part of it is occupied by Jerome Powell, who will be speaking today. And the other side is that we're at the highest valuation levels we've been in, in 10 years. Um, we've got earnings are, are fading. This consumer confidence is there. Um, and so there's all that, but it's all pushed out by the by quantitative easing to infinity and beyond. So it's still going to be heading higher for the time being, and there's an anticipation of stimulus on the back of that. So we probably are going to continue higher, but the risks just keep heading higher and higher, and you yeah. need to be careful with what you own right now. You have a smart dog if he understands the laws of physics. <laughs> uh, but, Wasif, let me ask you, uh, Barry mentioned the Fed uh, and the role that they're playing here. And it's also true that these two things can't be happening at the same time, that we have, as Barry described it, the highest market valuations in a decade. At the same time, we're about to hear this new paradigm from the Fed that would uh, presumably allow for higher inflation. You have to imagine those two things can't both be true. Either investors have to believe that the Fed is going to achieve that or not. Yeah, I think uh, what the investors are saying is that they believe in the power of the Fed to be able to hold us over until we do get back to normal. So I think that's the operating premise, that while we are waiting for the economic recovery to get there, uh, in the meantime, the Fed has our back and is being able to protect the, the market from a lot of volatility. The other thing to think about is valuations are indeed a lot higher than they were at the beginning of the year because the market has rallied back. But earnings are lower from where they were at the beginning of a year and what was expected of them. So the markets have gotten more expensive. But as history tells us that they can stay expensive for some time. So I agree with Barry that fundamentally speaking, the market is a little bit more uh, treacherous and a little bit more overvalued than it was at the beginning of the year. But the odds are that it continues to grind higher from here because of that belief in the Fed being able to hold us over until we get back to normal. What's interesting is that the concentration level of the market is very, very high. So the top five names have been pretty much driving the returns of the S&P 500. Absent those five names, the market's uh, pretty lackluster. Yeah, and I know that you guys are basically neutral on stocks and bonds, trying to do some more active things on the fixed income side. Barry, let me turn back to you. Do you have any thoughts about the shakeup in the Dow that we've seen? Or, or as far as you're concerned, is that I don't want to say cosmetic, but doesn't have broader investment significance for you. It really doesn't have a lot of broad, uh, you know, influence that, that we can see. Uh, I would use this time if, if I were looking to sell something, I would sell something that's being added. If I were looking to buy, I'd buy something that was being dropped. Mm. Uh, but that's about the only thing. I think the Apple split has a lot more impact on the Dow than these, uh, these names that are being added and dropped. Yeah, and finally, I want to make sure everyone knows your uh, stock picks if they're looking for a couple of particular names. Home Depot, Generac, and Cadence Design Systems. Generac doesn't already have a lot priced in. I mean, everyone in, on the East Coast is looking for a home generator now. And, and my relatives down in Louisiana are, are making sure they have their generators all right. set up, too, because of the, 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 you know, the hurricane that's coming in. We have those in our fund, the Golden Rainbow, and they have good balance sheets, which is important, and good earnings. And so we think that they'll survive this COVID time pretty well. All right, gentlemen, thank you both today. Wasif Latif, Barry James, always good to speak with you, sharing your thoughts on these markets. We have a news alert out of the bond market right now. Just had a two-year note up for auction with yields kind of on the move lately uh, towards some highs. Rick Santelli, let's get the latest on that. How'd it go? 
Hi, Kelly. Well, I gave the auction an A minus, an Apple minus, and there's some interesting features here. At 50 billion on this two-year note, it is the biggest auction of two-year notes ever. The yield at this Dutch auction, 0.155, which is the same as the last auction at the end of July. So they're both equal for the lowest yield ever at an auction. Let's go through the metrics. Uh, the bid to cover 2.78 was truly a big one. Uh, we had 3.10 in May. So if you go back two years, this is the second highest reading going back to August of 2018. Uh, the best index of 57.6. That's really huge. Best since April of 2017. We're just a smidge light on the directs, and the dealers take 28.7, uh, much lower than the 33% auction average of the last 10. So this is the first of huge amounts of supply. We have 50 billion today, 51 billion on fives, 47 billion on sevens, 148 billion package. We'll bring it all to you again tomorrow. All Kelly, right. And again, some strong demand there. Biggest auction ever of two years. Rick, thank you very much, Rick Santelli. Well, this year's volatile stock market has led to a big shakeout for ETFs. 188 ETFs have shut down so far this year. That's typically the amount we would see in a full year. And on top of that, new launches are scarce. Only 162 ETFs have come to market since January. That's the least so far since 2013. Why the shakeout? Well, let's ask CFRA's head of ETF and mutual fund research, Todd Rosenbluth. He joins me now along with Facts. That's director of ETFs, Elizabeth Kashner. It's great to have you both here. So, Todd, I'll first ask you, why the large number of shutdowns? I think there's two main drivers that are happening here. We saw some consolidation in the ETF industry. Invesco made a couple of deals in prior years, and they've really pruned their lineup to make room for other offerings, as did iShares and WisdomTree. The second factor is because the volatility that you mentioned earlier, leverage and inverse ETFs, that's a real bad environment for them, particularly if you're focused on MLPs or oil. So we saw a number of these leverage and inverse products shut down. This is a niche part of the market, but it's more exciting what we're seeing that's launching in ESG, in thematic, and in active. Hmm. And we're going to have possibly a record year for an ETF. I think it's shot froze. We'll go right back to it. But Elizabeth, let me bring you in because the way that Todd was describing the ones that shut down, the ones using leverage, their inverse ETFs and so forth. I mean, is this shakeout a good thing? So... You know, I, I think in many cases, turnover in the ETF industry is quite healthy, um, especially when funds that aren't sustainable go away. It means that the rest of the, uh, the options are a little bit more stable. At FactSet, we provide a, a fund closure risk where we rank at low, medium, high the chances that a fund will close in the near future. And, you know, one thing that we've done recently is uh, all of our exchange-traded notes are now rated at least a medium and possibly a high. Uh, because in addition to all of the factors that uh, Todd mentioned, we've also seen a real rash of closures of the exchange-traded notes. And what does that say to you, Elizabeth? Um, it says that the banks that issue them are having second and maybe third thoughts about um, the effect on their risk desk and their balance sheet. And a lot of banks are saying no thank you to the ETN business. That's very interesting. So, Todd, I'll turn back to you. And you were saying, you know, there are some big things happening in the ETF world this year. You mentioned a lot of these ESG funds, environmental sustainable governance focus funds is one of them. Yeah, so we've seen iShares in particular, but other firms that have been rolling out new ESG products, we're seeing strong year for ETF demand off of a very small base. We're also seeing what's exciting is actively managed ETFs, both fully transparent and semi-transparent, so we have Fidelity, 
Tiro Price, American Century, and Clearbridge that have launched these products. And then lastly, thematic ETFs. So we've seen Direxion launch in a couple of products. More recently, Global X has expanded their lineup uh, in response to the current environment. So telemedicine, working from home ETFs. These are some of the new themes. This is where the puck is going to, and the asset management industry is really skating towards it. Yeah, so maybe not so much a, a lack of demand at all for ETFs. Elizabeth, just a final word. Let me circle back to the banks that, that are no longer going to be in the ETN business. Is that bad for investors? You know, investors just have an extraordinary range of choices in the ETF space. In the U.S., there's close to 2,400 ETFs that are listed. So uh, it's really hard to make the argument that a handful that go away here or there are, are going to limit investor choice at all. You know, really what we see in investor activity is a continued march towards cheaper products. Mm. And that's a really great thing for investors. Yeah, absolutely. And that has driven the demand, uh, the whole sort of move towards ETFs that has dominated the investment landscape over the last 20 years. Guys, thank you both for adding some context around the news today. We appreciate it. Todd Thank Rosenbluth you. and Elizabeth Kashner with the very latest. Still ahead, we should have seen it coming. The Wall Street Journal's Jerry Seib joins us to talk about night one of the Republican convention and what the future of America's grand old party looks like in the age of Trump. Plus, new home sales blowing past expectations, surging another 14 percent. This as prices jump and supply falls to 2018 lows. Is it a recipe for another housing bubble? And the IPO frenzy is in full swing. We'll have more when the exchange continues right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The Republican convention underway with the party nominating President Donald Trump for a second term. Four years ago, Trump rode the populist wave all the way to the White House in a surprise win. Can he do it again? And what does the future of his GOP now look like? My next guest has watched the changes in both political parties for decades, and he's chronicled them in his new book. We should have seen it coming from Reagan to Trump, a front row seat to a political revolution. Joining me now is the author, Jerry Seib, the executive Washington editor of The Wall Street Journal. Congrats on the book, Jerry, and welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Good to see you again. Sort of see you anyway. Right, exactly. From afar. Let me ask you for your reaction to what we saw last night, because the very issue you're raising, we might have gotten a glimpse of. I mean, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley lauded for the speeches that they gave. Is that what the future of the GOP looks like? Well, you know, it's an interesting point, Kelly, because I thought that Nikki Haley and Tim Scott kind of gave throwback speeches in a way. They hit a lot of the traditional Reagan-esque conservative tones. But a lot of the rest of the convention was in the populist nationalist channel uh, where Donald Trump has really moved most of the party. And in a way, that's the great question for Republicans going forward. It's the story that I chronicle in the book is how the Republicans moved from Reagan conservatism to Trump nationalism and populism. And the question on the table now in this election and in the years ahead, regardless of what happens, is whether that's where the Republican Party and the conservative movement remain 
or if they snap back to kind of what we all think of, or at least I think of, as a more traditional version of conservatism. You know, the title makes me wonder. It almost comes off as if it's written by an establishment conservative saying we should have seen it coming and almost shaking his head in dismay. Is that what you mean to convey by this? Or is it more of a, hey, we should have seen this coming. We should have seen these changes that are underway and be embracing them and kind of moving forward with this new party that Trump has identified. It's very much more of the latter, Kelly. It was an attempt to answer the question a lot of us were asking ourselves and scratching our heads about in 2016, which is how did this happen? How did the party move so what seemed to be so radically from one mm. version of conservatism to another? But the truth and what I wanted to find out when I went back and pieced this back together was how did that happen, not just for conservatives, but for all of us, frankly, in the media and elsewhere who got it wrong or didn't see it coming, that we should have seen it coming because these developments in the Republican Party were developing over time. They were happening in slow motion for years. Pat Buchanan and Sarah Palin. And look, let's face it, Rick Santelli uh, and the, the rant about uh, bailouts of homeowners and mortgage companies that yeah. set off the Tea Party. All those things were signs that the Republican Party was changing and changing at the roots, and those changes were moving up to the top. Donald Trump got that in a lot of ways, and a lot of traditional conservatives who he beat in 2016 didn't get it. Right. So let's talk about, you know, Bobby Jindal in the journal wrote an op-ed a few days ago saying after Trump it is a, G a different GOP. He says, win or lose, the party won't return to the old orthodoxy. Populist ideas have put down deep roots. So do you, what, I mean, it all sounds like it's kind of vindicating Trump's win and perhaps suggesting he can do it again and that this coalition that he's identified is a lasting one. Well, I don't think we know that for sure yet, and I don't think it's that simple. I think what is true, and, and what I write about at the end of the book and in some excerpts that ran in the journal on Saturday, is the fact that there are now a, a new generation of younger conservatives who are trying to figure out how do we take traditional conservative thought and principles and adjust them to the age of Trumpism, not necessarily to Donald Trump himself, but to the idea that there is now, uh, particularly in the Republican Party and out in the economy in general, a bit of a more populist and nationalist sentiment, and that maybe conservative economic principles missed that. Maybe they were too doctrinaire in their embrace of free trade and globalization of the economy, and that maybe we need to adjust our message. And people like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley in the Senate and Oren Cass and Yuval Levine, who run think tanks, are all trying to meld these two things together. So I don't think it's black and white. I don't think it's Donald Trump yes or Donald Trump no. I think it's a journey to a new kind of conservatism, potentially. And there seems to also be a journey towards a new kind of uh, liberalism or uh, sort of for the Democratic Party as well that we, we could get into another time. But how do you think that Joe Biden will react to these changes that you've described if he wants to win back some disillusioned Trump voters in the fall? Well, I, I look, I think it's really important for Joe Biden to keep a foot planted in the center of the political spectrum, because first of all, that's what Joe Biden really is. He's always been in the center of the Democratic Party for 40 years. He's always been there. Now, as the party has moved left, he's moved to the left some too. But I think to win over the kinds of swing voters he's going to need in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan um, and even in Florida and elsewhere, he's going to have to establish that he's not that person Republicans are trying to paint him to be this week, not somebody who's being pulled around by the radical left wing of the Democratic Party. He can do that. That's his persona. He doesn't have to play that part. But it's going to be an important message, I think, for him to deliver this fall. Yeah, and the, that election is right around the corner with, with everything else going on this year. It's kind of hard to believe. Jerry, thanks so much. It's great to have you here. 
Thank you, Kelly. Good to see you again. Jerry Seib's new book, We Should Have Seen It Coming, From Reagan to Trump, A Front Row Seat to the Political Revolution, is out now. Coming up, J.P. Morgan just made a major announcement on where and how employees will be working going forward, and it could change the industry. We're going to have those details next, plus a closer look at some of the names that have missed the market comeback but could be ready to join the rally, including this mystery stock down more than 40% so far this year. We'll tell you what makes it a good catch-up trade and give you some of the other names. That's next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on markets right now. Dow's off its lows, but still down 126 points or half of a percent. We're down more than 200 at the lows so far. The S&P, though, and the Nasdaq are both in positive territory. The S&P by three points, the Nasdaq by 41 or four-tenths of one percent. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The CDC has quietly lifted its 14-day self-quarantine advice after travel from areas with high coronavirus infections. Instead, the agency is now saying travelers should follow state and local recommendations upon return. California's wildfires continue to burn across the northern part of that state, with seven people killed, at least 12,000 structures destroyed, and thousands of residents evacuated. There are concerns over a new COVID spike at shelters, but Governor Newsom says when he visited one, he was impressed by the safety procedures in place. There was a nurse there uh, that screened me. Uh, she didn't just take my temperature, uh, but she also asked me a series of questions. Uh, before I could go into the actual shelter, uh, there was another assessment that was done. Uh, there were specific protocols. And McDonald's is getting ready to launch spicy chicken McNuggets. It is the first time a new flavor of the iconic food item has been introduced since 1983. You are up to date. That's the news update, Kel. I'll send it back to you. They're just copying Wendy's. I mean, come on. I think I think they're feeling Chick-fil-A pressure. I think they're feeling Popeye's pressure. Yep. But it's an iconic brand, so they didn't want to change it. But I know. We'll see. I wish I appreciate how, how few changes they've actually made, but I'm glad the spicy nuggets are in. Well, we'll give them a try. <laughs> yeah, Me and you. Yeah, exactly. Tomorrow. <laughs> Sue, thanks very much. Mm-hmm. 
While the Dow and S&P are hitting plenty of new highs lately, there are a lot of names that haven't been so lucky. According to Morgan Stanley, some of them could be ripe for a catch-up trade. The firm screened for stocks that have a strong link between performance and earnings expectations and are still well off their highs. Here are a few of the names. Starting with AIG, you haven't heard that name in a while. The stock is down 41% this year, down 49% from its 52-week high. But Morgan Stanley believes the company has substantial earnings power and can run to new highs. How about Athene Holdings, ticker ATM? also on their list. It's down about 26% this year and off 26% from its yearly high. Now, they provide retirement services for companies. They reported strong earnings earlier this month. And finally, Bank of America, the stock down 27% from its 52-week high and for the year. While they reported strong numbers in some trading divisions this past quarter, their sensitivity to interest rates is holding investors back. But all of these names have a buy rating by Morgan Stanley. And for the rest of the names on the list, you can visit CNBC.com slash pro. Sticking with the banks, J.P. Morgan telling CNBC that its corporate and investment bank workers will now cycle between days at the office and days at home, maybe permanently. The move could have a lasting impact on the financial industry. CNBC's banking reporter Hugh Sun spoke to the company's COO, and he joins me now with more. Hugh, describe what exactly they're uh, introducing. Okay, so so uh, senior executive at J.P. Morgan, Daniel Pinto, explained it as a rotational model. And what does that mean? Basically, if you work as a trader or as an investment banker or anywhere within a corporate investment bank, you'll have perhaps two weeks of the month, perhaps one week of the month, perhaps two days a week working from home, even you know into the future. And I think this really refers to a post-COVID future in which there, there's going to be you know, greater demand to be back in the office, yeah. but at the same time, demand to have the flexibility that people are starting to really appreciate. If people can pick their days, maybe they would help line up with their kids' school calendar this year, for example. But Hugh, tell me about how lasting how these changes could be. I mean, how different to, yeah. uh, for people who work in finance, this opens up a whole array of places they could live in the country or you know, types of lifestyles that may not have been previously imaginable. Well, I mean, I think to be clear, that they're still going to have to spend a good part of the, the work week. Uh, this isn't, this isn't, isn't, yeah, people aren't going crazy and saying this is a tech company all of a sudden. <laughs> they're still going to have to, to work uh, physically in the office. You know, people from JB Morgan to Goldman Sachs talk about the collaboration and the creativity that happens when you, you know, put people into a, a conference room together. Right. So that's never going to go away. However, we're going to have the ability to, you know, to, to have a greater level of flexibility than they've ever had before. And I think the, the real takeaway, the reason why you should believe what they're saying is, look, they have these backup trading floors outside of New Jersey, in New Jersey, outside of New York, and outside of London. And they're actually saying, we don't need those anymore. Wow. So once you get rid of the backup sites, that's how you know that when he says this publicly, and he says this on the record to CNBC, mm-hmm. that they really mean it, that this is a permanent, perhaps a permanent shift in the way they look at work. Right. And, and I it- think you know, the, the big ramification is, you know, that this is going to spread to other companies because they're obviously, you know, a huge, huge part of Wall Street today. A hundred percent. I'm just thinking through if somebody knows they're going to be on for two weeks, off for two weeks, they could live in the Caribbean. I mean, they could literally be domiciled outside of New York and try to avoid those taxes or whatever. If they're doing it, you know, a few days a week where they only have to be there Tuesday through Thursday, well, four days off opens. You could live in New Hampshire. I mean, that's what I and I agree. This is bigger than just finance. And that's why it's so interesting to me. Yeah, you're a step ahead of me. You know, I guess you could go to you could go to the Barbados, right? They're they're wanting people to, to work remotely. There's a lot more. Um, the other part of this, by the way, Kelly is you know they they you know Pinto's told me 
basically, if you have a lot of companies doing this, and they're anticipating somewhere in the line of 25% of their employees are going to be remote, you know, on a, on a pretty much permanent basis, rotating, obviously, through the ranks, that this is really going to pull a lot of the pressure away from our really stressed public transportation system. So mm. there, there are real strong sustainable arguments behind this, apart from the fact that people want it more, apart from the fact that people are being productive, you know, even despite being away from their teammates. This looks like it's, it's sort of a win-win, which is pretty rare. It's fascinating, Hugh. It really is to me the absolutely the story of the day. Thank you for bringing it to us and for joining me. Thanks, Kelly. Hugh Sun is our banking reporter, and you can read that piece on CNBC.com. Coming up, why not me? We're going to look at the Dow shakeup and the names that were left out that some were saying could have been a better fit. Plus, home prices are soaring as inventory is dropping. We'll look at whether the housing market is getting a little too hot in the areas of the country that are still affordable. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to take on the headlines are Frank Holland, Deer Drabosa, and Michael Santoli. Welcome, everybody. And our first topic, she said, is the biggest shakeup for the Dow in seven years and certainly a sign of the times. Effective Monday, Exxon, Pfizer, and Raytheon Technologies are all out of the Dow. The new names replacing them, Salesforce, Amgen, and Honeywell. These moves also coincide with Apple's upcoming four-for-one split on the same day. Price being the operative word here, guys, according to Bespoke, the average share prices of the new stocks is four times higher, Michael, than the ones going out because a lot has been made of Salesforce coming in and Exxon leaving. But why is Amgen replacing Pfizer? Yeah, it's really not that much of a difference in terms of how those stocks behave. Obviously, both kind of mega caps in the in the healthcare sector. Arguably, Amgen a little more exposure to the faster growing parts of healthcare and biotech. But I do think it's it's a quirk of the Dow. Obviously, that share price does actually matter because there's a there's an instinct not to want extremely low price stocks because what's the point of having one or two or three of only 30 stocks have almost no influence on the price weighted Dow Jones Industrial Average. So they want to try to normalize that uh, a little bit. So in addition to trying to get industry representation and some kind of exposure to the big themes in the economy, they have to worry about those mechanical issues as well. It's interesting, guys, because Barron's makes the argument, Mr. Holland, that Facebook should go in because it's the bigger market cap. It's the better known name. Like if they're looking for tech names, that should be one of them. But apparently, you know, owner control over these companies is a big problem. And Salesforce doesn't really have that, but Facebook and Google do. And that keeps them from being real contenders, I guess. Well, I mean, Kelly, here's the real question. If you're trying to improve the tech representation on the Dow, why wouldn't you include Amazon? It's because of the price weighting. Right. That's the issue right there. So wouldn't Amazon be very reflective of tech in America right now? Of course it would. So all these changes, they're generally cosmetic and they're caused by a cosmetic change. Apple split. If the Dow really wanted to update and take itself into 2020, you would just add Amazon and figure out some other way to wait. Right. But Deirdre, as we know, that's not possible. In fact, Amazon's presence was becoming, you know, more and more awkward because it was so out of whack with the other components. So, again, that it's it doesn't coincide with Apple's four for one split in many ways. It complements it. Right. And remember, this is called the Dow Industrials, not the Dow Technology Index. Uh, What surprised me more, perhaps, if you're just sort of playing this game, who could be in, who could be out is in terms of chip makers, Intel still in, yes, but some have suggested that perhaps 
it should be replaced by NVIDIA. If that stock price is too high, trading above, what is it, $500 a share, maybe AMD, which is at 85 bucks and change. So <laughs> there are still lots of questions. You could play this game forever, but I, I personally, I, I like looking at the chip makers here. Yeah, and Mike, it shouldn't be the industrials anymore. No. I mean, it just, that's it. We love it for tradition's sake, but it's obviously not that. What, what are your thoughts, too, on kind of the owner, the founder-owner control issue in terms of who gets in? I do think that probably is uh, a, a consideration and why perhaps it's keeping Facebook. Also, you know, it's just, it's also a high-priced stock, so it's not too much higher than Salesforce, but uh, presumably they don't want to do Alphabet for, for similar reasons as well. So I do think, you know, uh, it, it's not necessarily the case that the Dow is always going to jump on the hottest, most up-and-coming stock to the NVIDIA point you're just making. It absolutely might be the case, but there's a certain willingness of the Dow to wait until something is almost slightly past its yes. hyper-growth phase yes. before they jump on it. You know, Walmart didn't get into the late 90s. It was like 30 years into dominating retail by that point. <laughs> so everyone who wants Tesla in there right now, okay, just listen to what Mike is saying and just give it a decade or so. Next up, the stay-at-home trend is leading to a surge of new tech IPOs. Cloud computing firm Snowflake, why would you want to be called Snowflake? Anyway, they were joining a list of a half dozen Bay Area startups filing to go public just last night. Other names include telehealth firm Amwell, workplace app Asana, and gaming developer Unity Technologies. Deirdre, we're noticing the theme here. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing yesterday, Callie. I tweeted out five more, you know, five S1s dropping today. Could there be another? And I was totally joking. And what do you know, five minutes later, another S1 dropped. We're expecting Palantir any moment mm. now. We got Ant Group, Ant Financial overnight. So this has just been... Um, the biggest boom that I can remember just in this concentrated amount of time. And what's happened, of course, markets are at record highs, but also you saw some of these names they wanted to go earlier this year. The pandemic pushed it out a little bit. Now you see the November election kind of pushing them to right now, and you're seeing this sweet spot. But I've made the argument, you know, there's software, such a hot play, but certainly not all <laughs> S1s are equal. You take to the most anticipated, Asana and Snowflake. One's doing a direct listing, that's Asana. Snowflake is going the traditional route. Snowflake is showing, you know, slowing pace of losses while Asana's, you know, doubled in the first half of wow. this year uh, from last year. And Frank, it's, to me, it's a little bit of investor beware. When a company's, you know, kind of capitalizing on a, something that's super trendy, that's great. But like, we have to see if they have real staying power. By the way, I thought it was interesting that Jim Cramer was calling Airbnb the steal of a decade because there's a company who would be, you know, really hit by the pandemic that insists they're still going public this year. Yeah, you know what? I mean, it seems like right now it's really a hot time for uh, IPOs that focus on tech or cloud technology. But when you actually look at the numbers of three recent ones, you look at Rackspace, that's up 12% year-to-date. Lemonade, that's down 12% year-to-date. And ZoomInfo, that's up 8%. Hmm. So it's kind of a mixed environment when you really look at it. That's true. It's not like the search to go public is guaranteeing performance, which, of course, you know, we have to keep in mind. <laughs> Just because you're, you know, it's good for the companies, but again, to your point, maybe not so much always for the investors. And by the way, Kelly, when it comes to something like Airbnb, I do think aside from the kind of timing of what's going on in the business, these companies that have gotten very large in the private market and have a lot of employee stock incentive compensation out there, some of that starts to uh, expire. Yes. You know, there's sort of a lot of things that are driving it that might not just be, hey, this is the perfect mm -hmm. moment to go That's public. That's true. I mean, in some ways, they all are kind of desperate, whether it's because they're the hot stock of the moment or in Airbnb's case because of the options expiring. 
uh, always something to keep in mind. Let's talk about shares of Chipotle, which are higher today after Bernstein hiked its price target on the stock to the highest on the street. They raised it 300 bucks a share to 1600 citing Chipotle's early pivot to drive-through <clears throat> and delivery as reasons it can continue to gain ground, Frank, as we move through the pandemic. Stock's been on a tear, outperforming most of its competition, up about 50% on the year. You know, Kelly, when you and Silco get those spicy nuggets, I'm going to go to Chipotle. I'm a big fan of Chipotle. <laughs> and the Burns, you know, when you go down and look at it, they have one great stat right here. 50% of their revenues right now come from delivery and order ahead. And Q3 comps are, six per, are on pace to increase by 6%. Everything they're doing is working. The order ahead, the Chipotle lanes, yep. everything else. And if you really think about it, when you don't have to wait in line and, and watch 20 other people get their burritos made, if you can just order ahead, why wouldn't you do it? They're so ahead of the curve. Great product and great tech. Yeah, it's amazing that that adoption number, Mike, is as high as it is. Um, I, I will say I wonder if they need to keep innovating the menu a little bit. I think, you know, the new technology is kind of helping gap the fact that the offerings to a lot of us who've been yep. going for 10 years, eh, I don't want to call them stale. They're a little stale. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, uh, a very kind of tightly curated menu is the way you put a positive <laughs> yeah. spin on it. It doesn't stop, you know, my kids from going two or three times a week. But I will say um, there's another element of this, which is it's a massive net beneficiary of the carnage in the rest of restaurants. Um, they're going to add 5% to their store count. Very rare to see chains growing actual number of boxes right now. Uh, and the valuation implied in this price target is hilarious to me <laughs> because they basically say if there was a normalized sales and earnings growth from before the E. coli crisis, and in other words, there was never a hiccup there, and then it projects ahead another nine years, mm. then we could put a $25 multiple on those earnings, and that's 1600 bucks a share. It's wild. It's basically just like, the tailwinds are there. Almost don't even try to put a financial rationale behind it. That, yeah, I'm going to leave it there because, like, that's the that, Deirdre. That's just amazing to me. It's a technology company, right? That's what the company may say. Um, but I do think that one of the knocks against the company is that it hasn't seen, you know, a ton of margin growth because they've been reinvesting back in the business. They already had their eye on the technology piece of this pre-pandemic. The last thing I'll say, Kelly, uh, maybe they need more menu innovation, but they did put the recipe for its rice on TikTok. So give what away some the of its secrets of the, there. Isn't it just like white rice with some cilantro in it? That's not exactly like a house secret. <laughs> I mean, I'm not there, saying I could replicate. touch to it. Yeah, yeah I think Kel it's called me not making it in the rice cooker. Kelly, one other quick point. Qdoba, which is one of their competitors, they added like spicy queso and, and beyond meat. Yeah. Nobody talks about it. People well, are still going to we, Chipotle. No, so. no, we go to Qdoba all the time, my friend. I all enjoy it myself, but it, but it certainly doesn't have the buzz that Chipotle no, you're right. has. You're right. They, they show some of that menu innovation, but it doesn't seem to hold on. People kind of like the same McDonald's formula. You know what you're going to get when you go there, and if you like it, you keep going. It's true, and Chipotle is just a cold stock. It is the Tesla of the food industry. Mike's right. Finally, could we be soon seeing electric planes taking to the skies? Tesla CEO Elon Musk hinted as much in a tweet last night, suggesting his company could mass-produce batteries with 50% more capacity in three to four years. Experts say that would be the next step towards powering electric planes. Tesla will reveal probably its latest performance measures at the upcoming Battery Day on September 22. The stock, again, continues to rally. It had of its own five-for-one stock split set for Friday. It's up nearly 400% on the year. Let's talk about the battery piece of this first, Deirdre. We've all learned to take Musk with a grain of salt, but sometimes it's like the old thing. You underestimate what can be done in a year. You know, you overestimate what can be done in a year, but underestimate what can happen in three to four, and maybe he's right. Yeah, and I look back at that SpaceX example years ago. People didn't think he could do it, and what do you know? We all gathered around our TV 
um, a few months ago now and watch that rocket take off to the ISS. So never underestimate him. But I also think, Kelly, the fact that we're talking about this company as a battery company really tells you why it's now a $370 billion market cap company. We're no longer just talking about the cars, but this you know, extreme amount of innovation, potentially getting the million mile battery. Will he deliver in a few weeks from now? That's certainly up for debate. Will he deliver over the long term? I think a lot of the uh, bears have learned not to bet against. Him. I just want Mike to rattle off the valuation the way he just did for Chipotle. <laughs> Well, it, it almost doesn't even bear uh, describing because, you know, this, of course, is the uh, Chipotle of electric vehicles and it's priced that way. Um, I do th find fascinating. First of all, the stock was above $2,100 midday yesterday, and it has had a pretty significant little gut check here in the very, very short term, along with Apple. So I do wonder if you kind of used up that stock split mania for the very, very short term in both of those stocks. Uh, but I also like how Musk always realizes he has to be the one talking about the perpetual tomorrow. Yes. The, the entire yes. brand is, oh, you actually haven't seen anything yet. Uh, and he was <laughs> overpromising when they were going to get to this year's car sales volumes. He said he was going to do by 2018, five years ago. Nobody remembers it because no. it's always seemed like they're on to the next And thing. because they put a rocket in the sky and landed yeah. those two guys on a floating rig. So you know what? I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Thanks, everybody. Today for Rapid Fire, Frank Holland, Deirdre Bosa, and Michael Santoli closing it out for us. Coming up, more and more states are turning to COVID tracing apps to manage the crisis but they are not really all that effective yet. We'll look at what needs to happen to change that. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. As states try to gain control of the pandemic, many of them are turning to COVID tracing apps for help. But the process is far from perfect at this point. Condessa Brewer is here now with a closer look at how it works and what needs to happen for it to work as intended. Contessa? Hi there, Kelly. Good to see you today. At least eight states have launched their own digital apps for contact tracing. The earliest ones relied on GPS, and boy, did it spark a big concern privacy concerns here about tracking a person's whereabouts. The new ones rely only on Bluetooth and they exchange tokens with other devices that are running these apps. Now Nevada just launched its app this week and it works like this. Now I've downloaded the app on the phone. As I pass someone on the sidewalk, it would not exchange a token. But when I go into a store and say have a conversation with a shopkeeper for five minutes, it would exchange a token. And then assuming we both have the app, the tokens would go on and they would be exchanged. If I then test positive, I would be given a unique code by the health department to upload into my app, which then alerts devices that received my token within the past four days. It only reveals that you've been in contact with someone who tested positive. There's no who, when, or where. Now, Nevada's biggest employers are urging their employees to download this app. Wynn Resorts, MGM, NV Energy, UNLV, among others. McCarran Airport is posting uh, signs out there. They're trying to urge visitors to sign up as well. If we get full adoption of a digital app, people coming to Las Vegas for a concert, a fight, a convention, um, would know when they go home uh, what their health outcomes were uh, and exposure was when they visited our destination. 
Many of the states are launching their apps using Apple and Google's collaborative technology. The goal here is a national repository for the data so the states can exchange the information among themselves. They're not doing that yet. Experts say they really need 60% adoption. In Singapore and Iceland, they have 35 to 40% participation rate. And Kelly, in Virginia, which has had its app up and running for less than a month, they're up to 10% adoption rate among adults who have smartphones. Well, that's higher than I expected because overall it's been a really slow uh, thing to roll out and I wonder just how much adoption we'll end up seeing. Perhaps the casinos can drive it. Contessa, thanks very much. Contessa Brewer looking under the hood for sure. us. Coming up, new home sales blowing past expectations as home prices keep climbing. Is the housing market getting too hot? We'll check in with the housing expert on what he's seeing across the country next. This housing market just won't quit. Check out July's new home sales. Sales soared nearly 14%, pushed the seasonally adjusted annual rate over 900000 Get this, the average price of a new home reached really nearly $400,000. The median price is $330,000, and the typical price of an existing home just crossed over $300,000 for the first time. Housing is one of the linchpins of this recovery, but with these record-breaking sales and prices, is the market running too hot? Joining me now is Ryan Gorman, CEO and president of Coldwell Banker Real Estate. Ryan, welcome. You guys are on the front lines of home sales and of this inventory plunge that we're seeing. Existing home sales were down 20% year on year for inventory. Um, tell me what exactly is going on out there. Sure. Well, we certainly have a shortage of inventory. So if anyone out there is thinking of listing, please do call your Cobalt Banker agent. We could use it. A lot of the buyers out there are a little bit frustrated, but they have a lot of reasons to feel very good as well, including record low interest rates. And for many of these buyers, they've got some significant life changes that are taking place here. Maybe they're able to work remotely, partially, or maybe completely, allowing them to accelerate some of these life moves. That coupled with low rates, really allowing them to, to search the market more aggressively than they were before. And we're seeing the benefits of that in terms of what's happening in existing home sales. Yeah. You mentioned a lot of it, price up, units up, really a lot of good news across the board. That said, the advantage, the affordability advantage of low rates is wiped out if home prices are going up too quickly. I know that on the new home sales, on new construction side, there's a soaring lumber prices. There are projects being canceled because they literally need to increase the price uh, buy more in order to get a crew, in order to get supplies, and then at that point it's turning some buyers off. So I'm wondering, what are people doing who are priced out of the market that they want to get into? Are they going to nearby markets? Are they looking to maybe more far-flung places that are enabled by work from home, school from home? What kind of set plan B are people coming up with? Yeah, both. You really hit upon it. So obviously the much larger part of the market in the U.S. is the existing home market, which fortunately doesn't suffer from some of the challenges that you outlined. But right now, if you're a consumer looking to buy in this market, you may have the most freedom you've ever had to look, perhaps because your employer has said you can work remotely or maybe you can come in a little bit less frequently. That may allow you to uh, maybe open the span that you're willing to search for. So maybe instead of a half an hour out of your, your job zone, maybe you're looking 45 minutes to an hour. In terms of increasing affordability, that can make a tremendous difference. And even in a tight inventory market, it can mean that the types of homes you want, you're able to find much more if you broaden your search territory. Maybe yeah. homes that have a space you can convert into a home office or a home classroom, like you mentioned. 
Right. I'm sure people are looking at that. The metro area for Santa Barbara prices were up 44 percent annually in July. In Pittsburgh, the median list price was up 25 percent in July from a year earlier. Tell me about places where you think people can still find affordable, so to speak, housing. Well, it really depends upon where you're looking to. So, for instance, you mentioned Pittsburgh, extremely affordable market. Santa Barbara may not be on the most affordable market list, but Pittsburgh certainly is. You can get a lot of a house for the money there, especially if you're coming from a different market. So I was talking to a, a client of ours last night, kind of classic story, first-time buyer moving out of Brooklyn and, and searching in actually Minneapolis, not a market that they knew, but somewhere they always wanted to be. Their employer had told them they could work fully remotely, so they kind of searched the, the country for where they wanted to be landed on Minneapolis. They've locked in a 2.5% fixed rate 30-year mortgage with wow. actually guaranteed rate affinity, our, our partner. They're buying Cole Banker listing, which is great, and working with one of our agents. The entire country was open to them to be able to find that blend of affordability as well as the value that they were looking for. Now, they're coming out of Brooklyn, but we just saw numbers earlier today as well as throughout the week that show Brooklyn is on fire as well. You're yeah. seeing a lot of increases there, too, in some of the higher average sales price. So really, it's not a story of a down market and an up market, it's really across the board, people investing in housing, including with the Home Depot numbers. Yeah, no, it, honestly, I could hear your stories like that all day because it's so fascinating to me. This is us building out a very a future and a very different uh, look for the way that people work in this country than what we're accustomed to. Ryan, thank it you really so much is. for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you. Ryan Gorman is the CEO and president of Coldwell Banker Real Estate. And that does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.